Well, y'all, welcome to Christ the King. My name is John Trapp. I'm the senior pastor here at Christ the King, and it is really good to be with you all. Um, we've been going through the book of Acts together as a church, and we've been talking about how um, God takes this group of broken, needy sinners, and he grafts them into his family. That's kind of the title of our sermon series, being grafted in to God's family. And uh, I want you to see today what we're going to read. Last week, Clay preached on this amazing work of the Holy Spirit where God adds 3,000 people to the church. And the question that I think we should, they would probably ask him was, so like, what now? Now what? We've got all these people, now what do we do? And it's important for you here today who are Christians to consider that question, but also if you're considering becoming a Christian, what happens after the fire of the Holy Spirit descends upon the church? Or another way of asking, how does God keep the fire burning? So let me read from, um, from Acts chapter 2 as we consider this question, how does God keep the fire burning? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would help us um, to see in your word how you plan and have provided for us a way to keep the fire of the Spirit burning in our lives. Uh, we pray that you would show us that now, and we thank you for your graciousness to do that. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, as I've mentioned before, I was a campus minister at the University of Texas for seven years before I came back to Houston. And one of the things that we would do a lot is have barbecues, um, kind of gatherings at people's homes. And a young lady in our group said, hey, you can... Come to, I have a great house in West Campus, and if we want to do some kind of like welcome back thing, uh, why, don't we, why don't we do it at my house? It's like, awesome. I'll, I make a great burger. I start bragging about my trap burger, telling them how great it was. And I was like, all right, well, let's, let's have trap burgers and invite, invite everyone. So we're planning on kind of a lot of people showing up and get there with all the meat and show up to her house. And she's like, oh, let me show you where my grill is. And she brings me to, my, to the grill, and we have a problem. Because I've never made a trap burger on a charcoal grill. In fact, I've never made anything on a charcoal grill because I'm a sissy. And you can judge me. That's as much as you want. But, like, I didn't know how to do this thing. So she, like, gives me the charcoal. She gives me some lighter fluid. She gives me some matches. And she's like, you know how to do this, right? I'm like, yeah, totally. Lying pastor. And so she goes back inside. And I just start, you know, I just dump out, like, a what seems to be appropriate amount of charcoal. Douse it with ample lighter fluid and toss a match in there, and poof, I'm like, sweet, I knew, I knew how to do this, great. But if you know anything about charcoal grilling, you know that about 30 seconds later, I had no fire. There was nothing, nothing going on. And so I'm like, okay, you know, first try, 
course, I should probably try a little bit more. So do the same thing, douse it, light it. You know, 30 seconds later, I got nothing. So a couple other students showed up. They're Macomb's business school students. I'm like, oh, that's the best I got. Y'all come over here. Maybe you know how to use a charcoal fire. They got nothing. And so, y'all, I'm literally on the phone with Domino's when he walks in. Square steel toe boots, tucked in shirt, belt buckle, an engineer named Stuart. I'm like, Stuart, get over here right now. <laughs> he kind of saunters over there. He's like, what are y'all doing? I was like, we're making a charcoal fire. I know how to do this. He's like, oh, well, I'll help you guys. And he builds it all into this beautiful little structure and puts the appropriate amount of lighter fluid, lights it, and it's not, poof, it's just a fire that you can cook on. And it burns for a long time, and we have a great time. And we still had some Domino's pizza added into the barbecue after that. But I tell you that story because I want you to think of that image of me dousing these kind of randomly scattered bits of charcoal that are all spread apart in this pit, dousing them with fire, lighting a match. That is the image that I want you to think about when you think about how we do church in America. That is the way that we conceive of the church so often in our culture. Pour a lot of like secret sauce on there. Let's get everyone fired up. 30 seconds later, nothing. You see, God knows that in order for a fire to keep burning, that we need to be close together. And so in this passage, I want you to see that the way that God builds these coals, these burning coals that have now had the fire of the Holy Spirit come upon them, he builds them together and he gathers them around four things, four-part sermon, here we go, four things, the word, the family, the worship, and the mission. It is so interesting to me that this is what the conclusion of the Holy Spirit coming upon God's people is. First, the word. How will they not become cold by their relationship to the word of God? The first thing that's said to them, about them, after 3,000 people become Christians, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I think this is really interesting. What it means, first off, is that contrary to what you may have heard, the Holy Spirit is not anti-intellectual. In fact, when the Holy Spirit comes upon God's people, it doesn't nullify their need for biblical teaching. In fact, they yearn for biblical teaching. The followers of Jesus are devoted to and shaped by the teaching of the apostles. And here's what's important. The apostles' teaching is not some new thing they were making up. It's Jesus' teaching. Jesus tells them so much in John 14 when he's talking about the fire of the Holy Spirit that's going to come to them. Listen, John 14, 25. These things I've spoken to you, Jesus said, while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So they were devoted to what Jesus taught through the apostles. And so, you know, it's probably like a list of do's and don'ts, right? That's what Jesus gave them. No. What 
they would have taught is, would have sounded a lot like the Gospels. And all throughout the Gospels, and really all, all throughout the Bible, what we see is that Jesus always leads with grace. God always leads with grace before he asks for law abiding. That's a really, really important category to get in your head. Think of it this way. Most famous law ever given out in the Bible, the Ten Commandments. What does God do before he gives the Ten Commandments? He saves them. He saves Israel out of Egypt. He could have, and oftentimes this is how we think God works, he could have said, I'll get you out of Egypt, here's Ten Commandments to follow, and if you do them, then I'll save you out of Egypt. It's not what he does. He saves them out of Egypt, and then in Exodus chapter 19, before he gives them the law, He gathers them around the mountain and he begins speaking words of blessing and grace to them. He says, you're my treasured people. A holy holy people, treasured possession to me. And then he gives them the law. It's the same way Jesus is. What does Jesus do when the woman is caught in adultery and brought before him by the Pharisees? And they've got the rocks, they're ready to stone her. And Jesus says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And everyone leaves, except Jesus, because he doesn't have any sin. He can stay there with her. And what does he say? Look, there's no one here to condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Grace. Next thing he says, now go and sin no more. Law. God's pattern is always grace and then law. And so the the apostles' teaching would have been telling people the grace of Jesus and then the life that he invites you into of following his law because he loves you. And so they would have been teaching, again, it would have sounded quite a bit like the Gospels because they wrote it, right? They would have been saying things like, Jesus told us to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, why should they follow that law? Think about the people who are hearing that message. Remember what, what was read last week from earlier in Acts chapter 2 when Peter is preaching his sermon in verse 22. Listen to what he says. He's addressing some of these 3,000 people who become Christians. Listen to what Peter says. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. Now, he is preaching to the very people that killed Jesus. Think about what Jesus prayed when he was on the cross. Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do you realize that God answered that prayer at Pentecost? That God heard his son. Listen to how beautiful this is, even the Trinity being involved in this. The father heard the prayer of his son on the cross that he would forgive the very people who were actively murdering him. The father heard the prayer of his son and he sent his spirit To them, grace always precedes the law. So, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The early church church was taught from the apostles and they gathered around it. They were shaped by it. So my question for you is, do you believe in God's grace and are you shaped by the way of life that he invites you into? If God really is for you, then that means he's for you even in the way that his word talks about how you should live with your money. 
That means that God is for you in the way that his word talks about your sexuality and your dating life. God is for you and with you in the way that he calls you to have regard for the unborn. In the ways that he calls you to have regard and care for the foreigner and the sojourner in your midst. It actually means that God is for you in the way that he would have you conceive of your retirement according to his word. And your schedule and your prioritization of justice. That God's word is for us. And so the question is, are you under the authority of God's word or are you under your own authority? Because if you're under your own authority, that's going to impact how you relate to the family of God. More on that in a second. But second point, the family. How are they not going to become cold? How are they not going to lose the fire? God gathers them together. They become a family. They're near each other like hot coals, giving warmth to one another. Verse 44, they were all together. They form a church. And this may sound weird to you, but I think it's biblical. And there is not, here it is, there's not much of a category in the Bible for an exclusive personal relationship with God. Exclusive personal relationship. What is in the Bible is a God relating personally to people in the context of a broader community. And so, even think about, think about the Psalms. Those are like intimate, personal relating between the author and God. But who were the Psalms for? The Psalms were for the people of God. It was the hymn book of God's people. They were for the community. The prophets in the Old Testament, they were, they had a, they had a very special, particular relationship with God, and yet they were the mouthpiece of God to the community. What does Jesus do when he comes? Does he go around and minister to individuals, or is he always bringing them together? It's that, right? That's what he does with the 12 disciples. He gathers them together. And listen, there are as many unicorns in the book of Acts as there are solo missionaries in the book of Acts. Zero. Anytime somebody in the book of Acts is going out on a mission as a church, they do it together. And if they ever get abandoned and are alone, they wait until someone joins them because that's who the church is. We need each other. We gotta be together. So maybe you're here and you're thinking, you know what? I like God, but I ain't into the church. I don't like the church. Church is a mess. The church has hurt people. The church has hurt me. The church gets things wrong. And I'm not here to argue with you. In fact, if you've been hurt by the church, I am really sorry. I am really sorry. And I'm also not surprised because the church has people like me in it. The church is filled with sinners. But the church is filled with sinners, but they're they're Jesus's. Church is his bride. And saying that you like God, but you don't, want to, you don't want anything to do with the church, it'd be like saying, hey, John, welcome to Houston. Would love to be your friend, but here's the deal. Can't stand your wife or your kids and never want to be with them. <laughs> that would be weird. Also, you should meet them. They're great. You would never say that. But if you did, what kind of husband and father would I be like if, if I was like, that's fine. We can still be buds. 
that wouldn't make any sense. Because I love them and they're mine and I'm theirs. Third century theologian and African pastor named Cyprian put it this way. No one can have God for his father and not the church for his mother. God reconciles us to himself, but also, y'all, to one another. We need each other. And so you see the activities of this church laid out in this passage. What they begin doing together is they get close together and they do things like they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. They're devoted to fellowship. They share meals together. They pray together. They witness the mighty works of the Holy Spirit through the apostles together. They financially care for one another. So big picture observation of all that, because I could preach, that's like five sermons right there. But big picture observation, you know what this means? It means that the church isn't about the individual. Look at all the stuff that they're doing. None of that's about the individual. It's about the family. And I want you to know, I I remember one of my professors in seminary said this. He said, really, it's only in the last hundred years that people will leave a religious gathering, be it a Bible study, a church gathering, and the rubric that they run through their head as whether or not they're going to come back like return to that is they ask themselves this question did I get anything out of that what's behind that question church is about me and what I get out of it and I will go back if I get something out of it now listen it's that's not like a totally bad question it's not an evil question to ask that but it's not the question it's not the fundamental question but it's becoming more and more the fundamental question because of the rise of expressive individualism in our culture. Now, Carl Truman wrote a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Warning, not a real page turner. Lays out like the history of Western philosophy since the Enlightenment, it's very intense. Helped me go to sleep. But it's also very helpful. And one of the things that he says in it As he talks about the rise of expressive individualism, he says, outward institutions, because of the rise of expressive individualism, outward institutions become, in effect, servants of the individual and her sense of inner well-being. Let me read that again. Outward institutions become, in effect, servants of the individual and her sense of inner well-being. Y'all, we see this in colleges, universities, and the workplace and in the church, that institutions have no longer become a place where people go to be formed, but rather institutions are places where people go and have them perform for themselves, or even where individuals go to perform and be validated by that institution. We have become a people who make the church another consumer good. But remember, the church was founded This is important. The church was founded by people who denied Jesus, who doubted Jesus. Some of them were responsible for killing Jesus, like we just saw. The church was founded by people who had experienced radical grace. And then Jesus said explicitly that following him is like taking up your cross just like Jesus did. So why in the world would we think that the church is about us? or about our preferences, or our music taste, or what we get out of it. When our Savior and our King says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A servant is not greater than his master, y'all. And Jesus, the King who saved us, came to serve. And if we're going to be like his body, that means that we're going to be like him. 
and give of ourselves sacrificially. And that's what you see them doing here. Look at verse 45. They become communists. Just kidding. They don't become communists. But you kind of you thought it to yourself, didn't you? When you saw it, you're like, are they being communists? Selling all their stuff? No. They don't pile all their resources in and then like equally divide it all up. That's not what they do. But what they do is they give to anyone as they have need. It's a needs-based deal that's going on here. That means that they are in relationship and they know what's going on in each other's lives. And they still have private property. They're meeting in each other's houses. See that? Everyone's got houses. And yet, they are radically generous with their private property, willing to liquidate it and give for the good of the church family. So, I want to have like a one, one and a half minute side family conversation that visitors, I'm happy for you to listen into. Okay? This is really for the church congregation, our family. I, one of my dreams for this, for being here, I'm, I've only been here for like a month, if you didn't know that. So, like one of the things I'm excited about being here is that our church would become a place that is more and more generous to the needy among us and around us. I really want for that to happen. And I think we've got a great opportunity to do that, to be a witness to God's grace in the way that we are graciously generous to others. So, as a church, as a leader in your church, one of the things that we're doing with our leadership right now is we're thinking about our 2022 budget and we're beginning to dream about how can we be a gracious, more and more a gracious people here in this place. And it's hard to dream big about generosity like that when we're a million dollars behind on our giving. We're a million dollars behind right now. So here's my encouragement, church family. My pledge to you is that I'm going to presume upon God's generosity that he is going to provide for this year and we are going to boldly dream about how we can be generous in the year to come. We're gonna presume that God is gonna take care of that and we're going to presume upon his generosity and what I encourage you to do is the same. Presume upon God's generosity and as Proverbs 3.8 says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Okay, disclaimer, I know, I know, a lot of y'all get year-end bonuses, and so the first fruit of your year-end bonus is like the end of the year, because that's when you first get it. So I'm not here to chide you about that, but what I am here to encourage you about is let's become a church that doesn't wait and hoard all that we've got and make sure that we've got enough and then give to God out of our leftovers when we're kind of sure that we've got everything we need. Let's be a church that gives of our first fruits. Listen, not for, I don't want a jet or anything, okay? I'm, so I'm not trying to get a jet out of you guys. What I, want, what I want is for us to be generous to our neighbors and to the needy among us. What a witness we can be in that. So the reason we do that is because it's not about us. It's about God, third point. How do they not become cold? By their relationship with God. And we see this in their worship, in their prayer. They're worshiping in the temple. They're worshiping at home. And commentator and pastor John Stott um, points out that there is a beautiful mix of reverence and joy in their worship. You see it. Verse 43, awe came upon every soul, reverence. Verses 46 and 47, with glad and generous hearts, they received their food and praised God. That's joy. Glad hearts. Now, 
I, I'm pretty convinced that the two closest things to like a, a worship service in the secular world are concerts and sporting events. Those are kind of like, everyone gathers, we look at something, we're like, that's like our worship service. And I want you to think about how both reverence and joy are at those things. Like if you're at a good concert, there's that moment where it's just the artist on the stage with his acoustic guitar, her acoustic guitar, they're playing, it's this reverent, soft song. But then there's also like the throw down jam dance song, right? Where everyone is joyful. Same, same with a sporting event. There are moments of reverence. Sing, sing the Star Spangled Banner, honor a troop, moments of silence. There's, there's these moments of, of reverence, but also of, of joy, that celebrating the, the, the game-winning home run or the big kickoff or all the fight songs. All of those things are moments of joy. Now, oh yeah, and the kiss cam, that was in my notes. Kiss cam, moment of joy. Um, what do you think about when, when you think about Presbyterians which do you think we're more bent towards we more bent towards reverence or joy now as Presbyterians we claim that we are shaped by the Bible right are we shaped by all of God's word to us and how he wants to be worshipped. Psalm 47, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. That's joyful. You know what the next verse is? For the Lord, the most high, is to be feared. That's reverence. Joy and reverence. Friends, are we being shaped by the word or by our comfort levels when we consider how to worship our God? Why should we have joy? Because Jesus is one. He's defeated death. He reigns, he's resurrected, he's ascended. We have joy over that. Why do we have reverence when we worship him? Because God is the alpha and the omega. He is the holiest. He is almighty. He's the one true God. And when we worship him, we are in his awesome presence. Like now, now we are in his awesome presence. So how do you do that? How do you have reverence and joy? You just try harder. No, that's not it. You, <laughs> you know, I, I, how do we do it? You do it by looking at Jesus and finding him praiseworthy. Here's the deal. I've been to, I've been to your Astros games. Ain't nobody got to tell you to be reverent when Jose Altuve walks up to the plate. And nobody's got to tell you to rejoice when he jacks one into the Crawford box. No one's got to tell you that. Together, friends, just as you have found Jose Altuve to be praiseworthy, and I, I'm not going to argue with that, together we must consider the excellencies of our God and King Jesus and see his praiseworthiness and respond. Are we modeling that? His praiseworthiness. Friends, if, if you, I, was, I used to be the youth pastor here, so encouragement to, to families of youth. Your kids, if you come to the second service, your kids need to be in here and not in the student ministry in the second service because this is where we get warm and together. This is where God gathers us close to his word, close to his people, close to his worship, and they watch us. Do you know why your kids are Astros fans? Because dads and moms, they watch you go crazy in October. We want our kids to love Jesus. We want them to be 
in this place of reverence and joy. You know who is watching? It's our kids, but it's also the world. Last point. They had favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Final point, the mission of God. How do they not become cold? Because of their relationship to the mission of God in the world. And I want you to see that the one who is doing the work here fundamentally is God. He is the one. Look, the Lord added to the number. Not Peter's great sermon that he preached. That didn't add to their number. What added to their number is the Lord. He did it. So a better question, I keep asking y'all, how do they not become cold? The better question is, how does God keep them warm? He's doing it. He's doing it. The Holy Spirit is at work in and through his people, through his word, through his people gathered together, through their worship, and through their participation in his mission. And here, look, it can be scary to say, like, I'm gonna participate in God's mission to reach the lost. Like, telling someone about Jesus, I'm a, I don't know if this comforts you or not to know this as your pastor, but like, that's scary for me. Telling someone about Jesus is scary because what if they ask you a question that you don't know? What if you say something kind of dumb? But here's the good news. The person who's mainly at work in your grandkid's life, in your kid's life, or in your neighbor's life, the person who's fundamentally at work is not you. So you can give a very imperfect gospel presentation and God can use it because he's the one who's at work. The Lord added to their number those who are being saved. And you never know, friends, how God is at work when the church is just being the church. I'll close with this story. A pastor friend told me about a church in Portland and this church had recently hired um, an ex-convict who had been in prison. And they hired him to... Keep the, um, keep the facility clean. But as he was in their church, they, they got to know him. And someone noticed how he always had on long sleeve shirt, turtleneck. And they asked him about it and he admitted that he had these tattoos all over his body that were horribly vulgar, racist tattoos. And he had just given his life to Jesus and he was ashamed of the tattoos that covered his body. So the church asked him, well, do you, I'm like, do you want to get rid of them? He's like, yeah, I can't afford that. He said, no, we'll, we'll take care of it. So every couple weeks, this ex-con and these like church ladies would walk into a tattoo removal center in Portland, just kind of like shuffling. You kind of imagine like the lady at the computer just kind of like look up like, what's going on here? And they'd show up and, you know, he was big, tough ex-con, but also painful, painful procedure, kind of scared. They would go into the room with him and sit with him, comfort him, pray with him. One of the last visits, they had a couple more to go. They shuffle in. The, room, the lady behind the computer looks up. She's waiting for him, and she looks, and, he's, and she says, y'all, this one's on us. I'm like, what do you mean? She says, we see what you're doing, and we want to be part of it. That's the church. That's the church being the church. That's what we're called to do for one another. Under the authority of God's word, who tells us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Together as his family, worshiping him, 
so that all can see the excellencies and praiseworthiness of King Jesus. And it's, it's all for his glory. So let's do it. Amen, let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word and for your grace to us. Um, would you help us to be your family for the good of one another, for the good of our neighbors, for the good of the world, and for your glory. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.